So here at our big table, our family has a lot of animals that live in our house. Yes, we have cats, dogs, chickens, frogs, rats, a snake, and a rabbit. My pet is a cat named Mittens. Actually, everyone in our family has a cat but my dad. My cat Otis is very fat and probably obese, but that's okay. Yeah, he's a big chubby cat. He's very fat. Yes, and Ava's cat is Milo, and he's Otis's brother, but he's like super skinny. And my cat is the softest and most cuddly cat. His name is Boo. John, you know you could get a cat too. Uh, nope. No more cats until we get rid of some of our other animals. We've got too many as it is. You know, pets are great, but they can uh, create quite a bit of work and can end up costing you more than you expect. Yeah, that's for sure. Let me tell you about an example of that. So a couple of summers ago, Elizabeth Archer, Ava, and Sarah were out visiting Elizabeth's parents for a couple of weeks at Grandpa Camp, which meant I had the burden of taking care of all of these animals, none of which are mine. So Boo, instead of running around harassing the other cats, was being real calm. And then on Saturday, he just barely was moving. And on Sunday, he was just laying and he wasn't moving at all. Oh, poor Boo. Yeah, I had to take him to the pet emergency room. It turns out he had a blockage and he wasn't able to pee. Yes, it almost killed him. This is actually somewhat common for male cats. The vets put a catheter in him and drained his bladder and saved his life. But the ordeal damaged his urinary tract and even after two surgeries, he isn't fully fixed. Unfortunately, Boo now cannot correctly control his pee. He dribbled pee all day long for a while. And our house started to stink like cat pee. It was gross. It got really bad, and it was almost hard to breathe in the room where he sleeps. It smelled like cat pee in every room except for some bedrooms in the room with our big table. Um, my room was the hospital room with Boo in it while we were gone, and so that probably was the most stinkiest when we got home. Yeah, that's true. Not only did it smell like cat pee, but it smelled like some kind of um, medicine or some kind of solution that they, I think, pumped him full of. Cats aren't allowed in the big table room after John had to replace the carpet because of cat pee. Yeah. Pooh even dribbled pee on clothes that had been washed and were waiting to be folded. So I went to work one day and I kept smelling cat pee, but since I was so used to smelling cat pee all the time everywhere, I just thought, ah, it's my imagination. Like I've got cat pee smell burned into my brain. But then I was going to the bathroom and I untucked my shirt and ugh, cat pee super strong. It was like the edge of my shirt tucked into my pants. But finally, we found the solution to our problems. Diapers for cats. (laughs) But diapers can be expensive though. Luckily for us, there is a low-cost option, Barker Time Cat Diapers. Barker Time Diapers are cute little shorts that hold pee-absorbing pads in just the right spot. This means that he doesn't dribble and pee on our stuff all the time. And yet he can still poop in the litter box. Since you can put a maxi pad in the little fabric diaper holder, it only costs about 30 cents a day. And the diapers come in various fabric prints, so Boo always looks stylish. Yeah, I like that leopard print one. It makes him look ferocious. I like the camo one. It makes it so he doesn't have a diper on because you, it's camouflage. He looks sneaky. 
I don't know about you guys, but I like his little pink bunny ones.、Hmm. But now our house smells much better. Yeah, and I don't smell like cat pee at work. Thank, Thank you, Barker Time Diapers. Not actually paid for by Barker Time Diapers. We just like them. <laughs> Welcome to our big table. Today is Monday, January 13th. This is the first episode of 2020. In today's episode, we have an interview with our neighbor, Wayne, who is a veterinarian. He's going to tell us about the business of being a veterinarian. But first, let's talk about what we did this week. So, Archer, yesterday afternoon, you received your Eagle Scout Award. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. I have lots of things that I did.、Um, I so many camping trips that I learned from, and lots of merit badges that I had to perform. And I think I'm a better person because of the Boy Scouts. Yeah, that's great. Now, when you actually received the award, there were two other, no, I'm sorry, there were three other Scouts that got their Eagle Scout Award at the same time you did. There was Brian Christensen. Seth Boyce and Jeremy Boyce. So the four of you、um, all got it together. Now, one of the things that's often done when you give out the Eagle Scout Award is that there's a pin given to your mentor. And、um, Jeremy Boyce actually gave me the mentor pin.、Uh, I worked with him for many years, and, and Jeremy was a great, a great scout. He was a good leader, and when he was in charge of the Deacon's Quorum and was in charge of the troop, I noticed that the other boys really admired him, and I think he did a great job as a leader. So I, I definitely appreciated getting the mentor pin. But I got to say, I was a little uncomfortable because I know that,、um, at least with you, Callie had helped you so much. And I, I figured someone must have helped Jeremy in a similar way. So I thought, uh oh, I wonder if someone put many, many hours helping Jeremy get his Eagle Scout. You know, going through the paperwork and planning the project and all that, because I didn't do that and I felt a little bit nervous. So I got to tell you, Archer,、um, when you stood up and you gave your mentor pin out and you said that, that you gave it to your father, I thought, oh no, Callie put so much work into that. I felt kind of embarrassed actually that I was getting the mentor pin. Not, not that I didn't appreciate it, I just felt uneasy because I knew that Callie had done so much work. But then, and this was brilliant. You actually had three mentor pins. Correct. I gave one to you. I gave one to Kelly because she's basically like, she was the one that was just like, Archer, finish your project. And I'm like, okay. And then we finished the project mostly because of her. And then I gave the third pin to my cross country co- coach. Why'd you,、um, give a, why'd you give an Eagle Scout mentor pin to your cross country coach?、Um, because so I was still in Scouts by the time I got. To cross country, and he was the one that actually kept me physically active. Scouts have been keeping me physically active up until that point, and he continued on and he pushed me to continue to improve. The personal fitness merit badge that taught me, like, keeping track of my health and my activity, and then cross country was able to continue that, and I was able to get a lot more healthy and a lot more physically active. Yeah, and so I 
owe a lot to him, and I feel like he pushed me to finish the Eagle Scout project just because of my ability to complete something. Because mm. if, if you don't know, cross-country is kind of hard. So if you do go through one or two or three years of it, then it's it's definitely a sign of dedication, and I certainly felt that way, that it was dedication to it, and then that kind of transferred back over to scouts and, and trying to complete your projects. Correct. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, that was smart of you to actually give three of them out because it completely solved the conundrum of you know, the different people in your life that might have helped you accomplish that. And none of the other boys figured out that they were able to give multiple uh, mentor pins out. So they had to make the hard choices about who to give the one to. So good work in solving the problem in a, in a good way. Seth's going to listen to this podcast and he's going to be like, why didn't I do that? Yeah, Seth, Jeremy, um, and Brian all could have figured it out, but they didn't. But you know what? They certainly have worked hard and have earned their Eagle Scouts. Well, um, so Sarah, you showed me a video earlier today. Why don't you tell me about that? So in language arts, we had to do a book report. And our group's book, it was me and my friend Audrey and my friend Gory. And our report was on the book Rosemarked. Wait, is who? What? Who is Rosemarked written by? It's by Olivia Blackburn. I don't think I'm familiar with that author. Has she written a lot of stuff, or? I don't think so. I think she's just wrote written Rosemarked and Umbertouched, which Umbertouched is the sequel to Rosemark. Okay. And so we had to do a book report, except we decided to do a wee video report, which is just basically a video report. And it took us 11 hours outside of school, just going to each other's houses and working on it. And it was frustrating. Yeah, it was a pretty cool video. You used lots of different images and clips. Um, and then you were talking about the book and about the plot. And yes, that's generally what book reports are. Yeah, but you know the video thing, you were talking over various clips. So I think it by having those clips in the background, it makes the audio part a little more interesting because... Got to tell you, um, I'm sure your teacher is listening to lots of reports on books, and it probably gets kind of repetitive for us, so it's fun for her at least to have her eyes have something to look at. 11 hours seems like an awful lot of work for a book report. How long it did was, it take you to actually read the book? It took us about two weeks, although like we weren't like constantly reading it. It was just like every once in a while, we would read a big chunk. Do you think it took you 11 hours to read the book? Probably around that time. Okay, so the same amount of time to read the book as it was to write the book report. Nice. Yes. Well, not to write it. Writing it was easy, but just the editing. Well, editing podcasts, it turns out, takes quite a while to work, too, so I can appreciate um, how much time that takes. In middle school, I um, this is one of my just random proud feats that I think about too a lot. Um, I got a book from the library in the morning, and then I read it during the reading period in our language arts class. And then I got home, and I continued reading it, and I read until 2 o'clock in the morning, and this was on a weeknight, and I finished the book, and I was just like, huh, okay. So I read that whole book in a day, and it took me around six hours, and it was just like, huh, well, now I have something to think about because it seems like book is about equal to six hours worth of nice entertainment. 
and unfortunately your brain was sleep deprived and your thoughts were as a consequence all jumbled and addled. So you had something to think about, but you didn't have the brain capacity to think about it anymore because you stayed up till two in the morning. That's the problem with that story. I suppose. (laughs) Sometimes sleep deprived brains produce the best ideas. Usually not. Well, Sarah, let me tell you about when I was a kid. Um, I read all the time. Like I read so much. Um, we didn't have a TV in our house and the internet didn't exist. And I liked reading. I mean, I'm not going to say that I read just because we didn't have the internet and we didn't have TV, but I'm assuming if we'd had an internet and the TV, I probably would have read less. In any case, I read so much, but, um, I actually thought book reports were kind of boring So to make it more interesting, what I would do when I knew there was a book report due was I would go to the school library and I would just go pick a book out and I wouldn't read it. I would just look at the book and then I would write a book report about it. So I'd read lots of other books I could have chosen. I just thought it was more fun to write a book report about a book I'd never read. I would try and make up a plot and describe what the lessons of it were uh, and then turn it in. And I always got good grades on them. So either the teacher's didn't actually, I, I don't think they read any of the books that I chose because I, I would always choose books that were fairly obscure as far as I could tell. But anyway, that I regularly did that in middle school. High school, I don't think we really wrote a bunch of book reports. But So to all you big table listeners out there who don't like doing book reports, that's my suggestion to you. I would you. not recommend this. <laughs> Just well, go. So you need to be creative. And then you need three hours. And then, yeah, that's it. You don't need to actually read a book. Yeah, it's a lot more fun if you don't. But I recommend you read books. I just don't necessarily recommend that you write book reports about books that you read. Okay, Um, Elizabeth's here joining us today at our big table, and she's shaking her head. So I I don't think she um, necessarily approves of this approach to book report writing. So, you know, if you're a, a younger member of our big table listening audience, you might run this plan by your parents. I certainly didn't. I don't know if they would have approved. Give it a try. All right. You shouldn't. So anything else exciting that you did this week, Sarah? No. Or last week? No. My life isn't very exciting. Yeah. I've got some exciting stuff. This upcoming week for the card game I play, Magic the Gathering, there is a new set being released this Friday, and there's a big old countdown timer in the store that's dedicated entirely to Magic the Gathering, and it's always counting down, and when it gets to zero, that's when people can start buying stuff that involves that. Do you think they've already got the cards ready to go and sell? Yeah, they already have the cards and stuff, but and some people have been able to leak cards, and they mm. already have their cards, but technically it's not legal to play with them so if you do have them in a deck they're going to be like well you can't use that but you know it's still cool to have it yeah before anyways so this friday new set is being released lots of new cards and with a new set comes a um special uh, version of the game where you buy these special kits with a bunch of cards in it and you make a deck from that instead of like going and buying the best cards and stuff. You get a special kit with randomized cards and you make a deck out of that. And, and then that's what you play with is that deck. Correct. Yeah. Cool. That's those, the people that make Magic the Gathering have 
really figured out a way to make money selling cards by having it constantly change or not, you know, it's not constant by having it frequently change to keep it fresh. And they've managed to convince people that these are collector's items. So that uh, I think makes people more comfortable purchasing them. So it's good business and people love playing it. Good, good for them. There are pieces of paper, but people put value in them. Hmm, I think I know some other pieces of paper that I put value in. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was a hilarious joke. Thank you, Sarah. So, Sarah, did you notice the um, bag that mom was working on this week? Yes. Yeah. What do you think about it? It was very similar to the bag that she made for me a few weeks ago. It was supposed to be a Christmas present, but she wasn't able to get it done on time, which is fine because... It does take a lot of time. It's just tedious. So what was this bag? It was a project bag that holds, for me, it's going to hold my art supplies. And she's going to make me another one that holds, like, my school stuff. Elizabeth, I thought the one that you were making um, was for you, though. Uh, The one that I made this week is for me. And then I'm planning on making a second one for Sarah for okay, her school Well, supplies. I guess it would be a third one. Well, Wait a minute. How many are you getting, third Sarah? third bag in total. Yeah, a second bag for Sarah. The third bag, bag that she's made. Got it. Gosh, Maybe I can get one of these I was going to say, Archer, I kind of need a bag for something. I can't think what, though. I'll have to come up with some reason why I need an awesome bag. I'm just going to have to wait because I'm first in line. Yeah, these are pretty cool looking bags. Um, Elizabeth's got fabric with designs and and pictures and whatnot on it and then she sews uh like puts thread that onto that design so that it makes parts of the design or parts of the picture pop up it looks pretty cool and then it's got all kinds of pouches and things to put various items in well while we're talking about that Wait, then hold on. we should probably give credit to the woman who created all of these bag designs Wait, but hold on i like how you just described what a bag was <laughs> Well, no, I mean, there's bags like just a purse or something that's got like one compartment in it. This thing has pockets that you can put things in. Yeah, it's got a ton of them. Well, it's not a tote bag. Yeah, it's not a tote bag. One big old bag. It's not a purse with one big, I mean, it's got an open slot, but this has a, it's more of a suitcase. I get get Sarah's point, though. (laughs) We did just describe a bag. You know what, Sarah? We'll put, not not everybody knows what a bag is, and uh, we've got to make sure that everyone who listens to our big table doesn't get lost in our conversation. Maybe we should put some I'm pictures of the bag up on the website. This we bag, should... it's spelled B as in boy, A as in astronaut, and G as in good. Oh, okay. Bag. As opposed to, that's a bag. Never mind, I give up. B-A-H-G. Yeah, something like that. All right. Well, um, the thing Hold I wanted to... Who's the creator of the fabric? Yeah, sorry, Elizabeth. No, the creator of the of the bag designs, her name is Sarah Lawson, and she has a website. If you want to make That's a bag of your own... Sarah. You can go to her website, is So Sweetness, S-E-W, S-W-E-E-T-N-E-S-S, So Sweetness. And she does create very impressive bag patterns that have unique um, pockets and pouches. Her instructions are fabulous. She really is a great bag designer. Yeah, that, that, Sarah, that's why I was describing all that stuff. Because when I looked at it, it, 
it did strike me that unlike most bags that I've seen, this one had a lot of pockets in it, more more than is typical. Um, okay, so let's see. The one thing I wanted to mention um, that I'm doing this week is I'm in our church. I am now working with the 11, 12, and 13-year-old young men. Um, since Scouts is no longer being done by our church, our church is replacing it with a new activity program. I don't know if they have a name for it or not, but anyway, it's going to be different. But my role is something similar to a Scoutmaster um, in that I'm going to help the 11, 12, and 13-year-old group uh, you know, do activities and set goals and work on things. So I'm pretty excited about that. I like working with that age group, and I think we're going to do a lot of cool activities. Today, however, uh, we are going to be talking with our neighbor, Wayne, about veterinarian stuff. Today, we are joined by Wayne Boylot. He is a veterinarian. The primary way that we know Wayne is he's our neighbor. We've been in this neighborhood for 10 years, and I don't think we've ever really gotten to know um, the Boylot family that well. I know Elizabeth has had conversations with you and your family, and I've had a couple in passing as well. I don't think our kids have, but... Uh, you do something that's of interest to our family, and we think it'll be of interest to the people that listen to our podcast, too. Sarah, in particular, is an animal aficionado. So you owned a veterinarian clinic, and then you sold that to a bigger company and now continue to work at the place you built up. Yes. The name of the hospital that I am employed at right now is the Veterinary Group at Chesterfield. It was started in 1990, and I joined the practice in 1992, became a partner in 1997. The founder was a classmate, or not a classmate, but a roommate of mine while oh, we were really? in vet school. And um, four years ago, we sold the practice to a corporation based out of California called National Veterinary Associates, and they have run us and elevated our practice since then. Right. So- bigger company. When you have more resources, you have professionals in an HR standpoint or an IT standpoint. You have access to to greater dollars. So prior to being a corporate practice, if you wanted a piece of equipment, an ultrasound might be thirty or forty thousand dollars. And if you needed an ultrasound, if the money wasn't in the bank, you could finance it, but it's not as easy to come by. When you have the ability of a larger corporation, you can leverage their finances and their capital or money to go ahead and have larger purchases that may not have been available on a smaller scale. And of course, they might get good deals as well. Oh, absolutely. Right. Because this particular uh, corporation owns 500 or more hospitals. So they can certainly leverage buying power by multiple things that they would purchase. Yeah, and do they do you guys sometimes purchase equipment for your location that other people in the same company would come and use? No, it would just be for our use okay. only. There are a total of four hospitals in the St. Louis area that are owned by this corporation. The closest one, you know, maybe thirty minutes away. So nothing in the immediate, you know, Chesterfield area. Okay, and ho- hospital. To be clear, you're talking about an animal hospital. An animal so, hospital. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sarah, why don't you tell us the animals that uh, you have had and that you have and that you think you may have in the future? Um, we have a lot of pets. We have cats. We have four cats. We have two dogs. I have three rats and two frogs in my room. And we have a snake and a rabbit and a whole bunch of chickens. 
And do we have any other pets? Yeah, not right now, but we, we've had others in the past. Yeah, we have had more rabbits and we've had like gerbils and a hamster at one point. Didn't we have some kind of lizard? Or that was I Oh yeah, we had a bearded dragon. Uh, yeah, I had a bearded dragon which just passed on to Sarah and has since returned to the owner that we got. Or that from. thing went. Okay. So it was in our house for a few years and now it's back with, with Meredith's family? Yes. All right. Well, now it's in heaven. Yeah. What happened to it? She died. At Meredith's house though. Yes. Oh good, we're not guilty. So like, what's the variety of animals that you've worked on? That I myself personally have worked on. Well, first off, if you once you graduate with a veterinary degree, you are legally allowed to work on anything except for a human being. Okay. So that's easy. Nice. Everything falls under your wheelhouse except for humans. <clears throat> what about what, like a whale? If you you in theory you could. Now I would not go and work on right. a whale. You need some specialization. But once once you would receive your doctorate in veterinary medicine, you could receive additional training in marine animal biology or medicine per se. So for myself personally, I am primarily a small animal veterinarian. So I would see in a typical year, 90 to 95% dogs. I see about- Wow. That that big of a percentage? That big of a percentage. Do you think that's because that's the primary pet people have or- well, no, because I have veterinarians um, in my practice that will see 95% cats. Okay. So you're hmm. the dog guy. Someone else is the cat guy. Sort of, kind of. There are a total of seven of us at the practice. Our practice is based, even though it's a corporate practice, it's based upon a personal sort of a touch. That scenario being if someone comes in the clinic, they just don't get any doctor. They are seen by the doctor that they request. It just so happens the people that request me end up being more dog people than they are cat people. They know that before they come in? Not necessarily. So I'm not known as like as the guy that sees dogs, but he doesn't see cats. <laughs> okay. Your, your, cat, your cat shows up at Dr. Boylet's office and he doesn't come out. Right. <laughs> Word got out. Now, I am known <laughs> just, as the guy kidding. that sees golden retrievers. That's very, very common. So a large percentage of the golden retrievers that come into the clinic come in to see me. A lot of that is just because I own Golden Retrievers. So I want to start a little earlier in your life um, because we've jumped right into talking about your practice and animals and so forth. But could we go back to what made you decide that you wanted to be a veterinarian? How did that happen? Well, as far back as I can remember, I cannot remember wanting to be anything other than a veterinarian. I think my exposure to animals came because my mother used to raise iris setters. So she would breed them and we had them around. I was naturally drawn to that of the animals. But I can't think of any instance of which I have a baseball player, an astronaut, nothing like that. My whole family are all engineers. My grandfathers are engineers. My father's an engineer. My brother's an engineer. My kids are engineers. And I'm the oddball. Well, I'm the You're an engineer of life. (laughs) Could be, yes. There was a, a story I remember as a child. Um, that pretty much sealed the deal that I was going to be in this animal profession. You know, I think I was probably Sarah's age or even younger. and I decided I was going to run away from home one day because my mom was cooking tacos for dinner. And of course, I didn't want tacos. I hate tacos. So a good reason to I run. I was going to go I ahead and leave. So my mom said, well, okay, go pack your stuff. So I got a little tiny bag from the grocery store and put all my valuables in there and told her I was going to leave. My mother said, well, 
good luck. And I walk through the door. And then as I was walking through the threshold down the driveway, I heard her say, it'll be a shame that you won't be here to take care of the animals because they're going to miss you. And I proceeded to walk to the end of the driveway and I stood there and I contemplated and I put my head down, put the tail between my legs and walked back in and had tacos for dinner. So my mom <laughs> knew that that love for animals at that point was a pretty strong thing in my Stronger son. than your disdain for Absolutely. tacos. Now, it wasn't until I was older, maybe more so of Archer's age, that the desire of, of a career in veterinary medicine, I think, stems from the ability to solve problems or mysteries. I'm not at all interested in human medicine, but I am interested in the practice of medicine. So taking that love for an animal and combining that with what I consider is solving a puzzle or solving a mystery, no different than on CSI, but this is in an animal world, trying to figure out why is an animal hurting or why is an animal ill when they can't speak to you, there's the puzzle. Using your senses such as vision, not taste, but smell, touch, hearing, to try to figure out the, the problem. Yeah, I, I bet there's a lot more different types of things that go wrong with the animals that you see than probably the average um, general practitioner would see, just because animals are so varied. Mm -hmm. If you think of all the things that go awry on the human side, the same thing happens to animals. So we as humans, we perform physiologically no different than do the animals. Biggest difference is that, you know, if you, John, have a problem with your appendix or something like that, you're going to tell a doctor it hurts over here. You're giving them a clue. We're not given the clue. We have to figure out that first clue to make that first domino fall to figure out what's going on. Sarah, do you, do you feel like you have a sense of when an animal's hurting? I suppose so. How do you think you'd figure it out? Oh, I don't. You'll look yeah. at them. Well, so with a snake, you look at the snake, and if you see there's that one bulge, and your snake looks kind of sickly or pale. I don't know if snakes change color, but like if that happens, you you know that might be the problem. Have you ever worked on a snake? Never, and oh, don't plan okay. on it either. <laughs> Elizabeth's mom hates snakes, and so she'll be glad to hear that. She Elizabeth has, and I would get along very, very well. Yes, <laughs> she has no interest in keeping snakes alive. Quite the opposite. So it's a, actually, that reminds me of this joke that entomologists, you know, theoretically they study insects. N no, they study how to kill insects. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess an animal doctor, not quite the same mind. Hopefully a little bit different, yes. Yeah. Hmm. Now, are different dogs, like I guess between a chihuahua and a big, uh, I don't know, a big dog, like that's a clear difference, but is there much difference between golden retrievers and like labs? Um, from a physical standpoint or an anatomical standpoint, no. So whether you look at a, a two-pound Yorkshire Terrier or a 250-pound Mastiff, the way that they work is the exact same. The only thing that is different is the anatomy is obviously to a different scale. But when you think about one dog versus another dog, they all work the same way. Do you have any like bizarre stories of weird animal cases that you've never seen before? As far as cases, I think that after I've practiced for 30 years now, so I think I have seen almost everything from a medical or a surgical standpoint. But, but not snakes. From an, not snakes, but from an animal standpoint, during one of my internships, 
There I was in San Antonio, Texas, and there was a wild animal that was brought in, something called a cotamundi. I have no idea from my recollection what it even looks like, but it is some sort of a mammalian, maybe about the size of a possum or so. It's something apparently got a hold of the cotamundi, and it was in a fight, and the cotamundi lost, and it was my job to sort of piece it back together. So I know medical doctors do a residency, and I've got my PhD in biology. We do what's called a postdoc, Mm -hmm. which isn't, it's often not a very formal thing. It's more like an internship, I guess. It's not a requirement typically for any career in um, research. So is veterinarian um, licensing, does it require uh, the internship or the residency? It, It does not. So veterinary medicine is going to be similar as well as dissimilar to that of the human side. When you apply to veterinary school, it's no different than applying to a medical school. You're going to do your undergraduate work. You do not necessarily have to have a degree. So if we think of how do you get into it, there are a certain number of classes that have to be taken in order to be able to apply to veterinary school. Usually that's about three years worth of college, and that Mm -hmm. was in my case. When I went to school, I took nothing but required classes heavy, heavy on the chemistry, heavy, heavy on the other sciences, biology and physics and whatnot. Genetics? Uh, no genetics. Hmm, I bet that's Sorry. changed. I bet that's changed since <laughs> It may then. have. Yeah. And so once you apply and you get into school, it's a four-year program. At the University of Missouri, it's two years of classwork. There is no summer off. You go straight for two years, and then you're in the hospital in a working clinic environment for two years. During that two-year stint, they give you four opportunities at 10 weeks to go off and you know, practice in a, in a practice standpoint. Once you graduate, though, you're done. There is no, for myself as a general practitioner, there's no internship per se, and there's no residency after graduation. Got it. So the internship you're referring to is actually um, a, a formal part of the, of the degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so for someone to go beyond my degree, then they would go into a residency program and they would become more specialized. The human side of medicine is exceedingly specialized. If you're a cardiologist, all you're going to do is work on the heart, nothing else. So you could go into a surgical residency or a medical re- or internal medicine residency, ophthalmology, dermatology, dentistry, things like that, and certainly not as numerous as on the human side. But when you have your general practitioner or your regular doctorate, as I do, you are expected to do all those things. So that's one of the things that's unique about our profession. No, no day is alike from another. They're all different. So I may walk in, the do- walk in the door and my first case may be an eye problem. The next case may be a high-risk pregnancy. After that, it could be a limping case. You have no idea what walks in the door and you're expected to be the expert on everything. You learn a majority of stuff at school, but have you learned anything critical that you're just like, why did they not teach me that at school? Yeah. Now that you've got this experience and you said that you feel like you've um, seen quite a bit, what should you have learned? Well, first off, they don't teach you anything about business while you're in school. That's critical. They don't teach you anything about communication while you're in school. And I truly believe the most successful veterinarians are the ones that know how to communicate, not with their patient, but with their clients. So the client is the human, the patient is the animal. 
the inability to communicate successfully, and you will be an ineffective veterinarian, as smart as you might be. So even if you have the correct diagnosis and know what the right mm-hmm. treatment is, if the owner doesn't feel reassured and, and comfortable with your expertise, then they're... Absolutely. And it, like any field of medicine, you always are learning. So even after 30 years, I still go to continuing education meetings because of new advancements, new drugs, new techniques. I don't know if you'll ever know everything, but I can tell you the dumbest I ever was was the day that I graduated because you only begin to learn your skills and utilize those skills from that point forward. Is there any new disease that you've like... Not not necessarily you've discovered, but that you've found an animal that you just did not expect, like rabies in a human or something like that? Fortunately, I've never seen a case of rabies. So vaccination has been very, very helpful of that. The most recent disease that we are looking at from an infectious standpoint is the canine flu, but a very unique entity in veterinary medicine comes down to a protein that is required or possibly not required. So there's an amino acid that is required in cats called taurine that typically is not required in dogs. So Hmm. dogs require 10 essential amino acids where cats require 11, the 11th one being taurine. When cats are deficient in taurine, they develop a cardiovascular problem known as dilatative cardiomyopathy. If caught early and you supplement with them with taurine- So you change their diet. Yeah, change their diet to something that has taurine in it, and their heart will go back to normal. In the last 18 to 24 months, they've identified, I guess, lines of golden retrievers and some other dogs that seem to be developing dilatative cardiomyopathy, and they're eating diets that are deficient in taurine, such as a grain-free diet. Interesting. And they are then supplementing those dogs with taurine, and if they're caught early enough, their hearts are going back to normal. Interesting. So, so they've 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 acquired or not acquired. They now have this genetic deficiency, like, be like almost a cat. becoming more cat-like. So the only thing that can be thought of, at least in these initial stages, there must be some sort of genetic mutation that has occurred. Because if it seems not across the board, but in certain individuals, maybe there is a genetic link that has created the necessity for taurine to be part of their dietary intake. Yeah, that makes sense. So is that possible, possibly because of maybe like the like dogs being more like cats and treat, treatment in terms of like as pets? So for cats, it's just like you pet them and they're inside and stuff. And maybe in yielding times when we first made domesticated dogs, we use them more as hunters. But nowadays... Maybe they're staying inside more or something? like. That's a great question because I'm not sure. But if we look at the dietary aspects of a cat and a dog, a cat is a carnivore and a dog is an omnivore. So a dog is meant to eat plants and, or plants and animals, where a cat is really an animal eater. So and yet, so, and so they yet would, dogs still need less amino acids than cats? Hmm. Well, the, the cats would be getting plenty of taurine or plenty of that thing from their meat diet. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the, one of the concerns in this instance, it seems to revolve around individuals that are having grain-free type diets. You know, there has been a fad recently I've heard about, about people trying to feed their dogs and cats even, um, vegan diets. Mm-hmm. And it seems problematic to me that you would attempt to 
feed your cat. Well, it'd be very challenging. Um, so if we look at the the protein components of a food, a dog or a cat can utilize an animal protein just as readily as they can a vegetable protein or a plant protein. That includes cats? Mm-hmm. The challenge, because at the end of the day, amino acids are amino acids, whether they come from an animal or a plant. But you need the right fats. You and- do need the right fats. But the challenge, if we think of a human that wants to be a vegetarian or a vegan, the ability to have a balanced diet, very hard to elevate those protein levels unless you really you want to eat a lot of beans or a lot of legumes and whatnot. Just because you eat salads and don't eat meat doesn't mean you have a balanced diet. So because of the nutritional needs for protein in a cat being so high, it'd be exceedingly hard to get a vegetarian feline type of a diet. But it certainly is available in a dog because their protein requirements are much less. So our cat Mittens recently had to get his tooth removed. Have you ever had to do dentistry with animals? All the time. So the two number one diseases you see in pets are obesity and periodontal disease. So dentistry is a huge component uh, to veterinary medicine. Did you have a particular interest in vet, in uh, uh, dental stuff, Sarah? Not really. I was just wondering because mittens, he must have like bit something. Or at least that's what we think. We think he chomped down on something too hard and it like pushed his tooth into his gum and like broke the root or something like that. And he needed to get his tooth removed. That is a very plausible explanation if they're outside and they bite into something hard. The other unique thing about a cat is that cats very commonly will have what they call a resorptive lesion. And it's, it's not exactly like a cavity, but the tooth begins to erode away and the root begins to erode away. And it weakens the entire structure of the tooth. And it can just go ahead and break just like that. And that's not with plaque? That's has, has nothing to do with plaque or tartar accumulation. It's something that's unique in cats. We tend not to see those sort of lesions very much in dogs, but in cats, you can look at a tooth and it can be just dissolving in front of your eyes and not have any overt signs of plaque or tartar on there. So it actually looks cleanish, but mm-hmm. it's going away. Yes. Yeah, cats, a cat's mouth in terms of periodontal disease, vastly different from that of a dog. I remember when I was growing up, the story that was told by someone in my family um, was that they visited my mom's house. Uh, they were dating one of my mom's sisters. And my mom's sister um, had like a scoop of ice cream or something like that. And, and a dog came up. So she let the dog lick this scoop of ice cream. And my uncle Ron goes, oh, that's disgusting. And um, my Aunt Dixie was like, well, you know, um, dog's mouths are clean. And he goes, dogs lick their butts. So um, I, I've heard this too. I've heard quote unquote do- dogs mouths are cleaner than human mouths. They are. But they lick their butts. But they lick their butts. Does that mean their butts are cleaner than ours too? You'd have to probably ask the proctologist. Okay. <laughs> but that's true. If we think of the pathogens inside the human mouth versus out of the dog, you are much better to be bitten by a dog than be bitten by a human oh, but from infection. That's more from saliva cleaning up the inside of your mouth. Is that is that why? It may not be the saliva. It's just the, the normal flora that's inside their mouth. Much worse in a human hmm. itself. Even though the dogs use their mouths to clean themselves. 
maybe, maybe that's the reason why it's cleaner is because they had, it's, you like, never know hmm. i guess you should start trying that uh test that theory out archer <laughs> yeah then I'll, I'll my mouth will just get really really clean it's just like oh archer you're gross from licking your butt and just like no 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 let me bite you to show how clean my mouth is yeah good good luck licking your butt um, have fun with that archer yeah that's one thing a dog can do that I don't think no you can. No more toilet paper. I'm telling you, mm. this is a great idea, guys. Save the planet. Save yes. The planet. Yes, indeed. Okay, Sarah has kept a couple of animals that we found. So she's got a couple frogs that you caught outside. They're tree frogs. Yes. And there's other animals that we have found in the area that we've not kept. Do you ever see people bringing in wild animals? We have one veterinarian that will see wild animals for an organization called Wildlife Rescue. So they're really not possessed or owned by anybody per se. Um, but other than that, no. For people who do have an eclectic group of animals as your family does, for people that have all the exotics that you've had or may have as the future goes on, there are a handful of exotic veterinarians in the St. Louis area that have specialized in that and could certainly help out. Um, you mostly take care of dogs just because you just do that a lot. Um, sounds like you've also taken care of cats. Um, do you take care of like parrots or birds? I used to have a fairly large, uh, clientele of birds. Interestingly enough, I'm allergic to birds and cats and dogs. Uh, and I hmm. am more allergic to birds and cats than I am dogs. So I'm fortunate that my bird population um, has pushed off to the side. I see one bird, and that's it. It is a client that I used to see when I first got out of school, and he drives from Arnold, Missouri, for me to see his bird. It is green with black head. Cool. A parakeet? Is, well, it's not a parakeet. So um, yes, I do see. I do see one bird, only because it's a very, very old client that I've bonded with very well. Right. And he comes and sees me still. Let's see. So you said you haven't treated snakes? Or? No, nothing from the reptile or amphibian family. Got it. I was going to go into that. Uh, have you treated any fish? No. And no pocket pets, which would be the rats, the mice, the guinea pigs, the gerbils, oh, the hamsters. Hmm. Cool. Do people bring um, those animals to vets that much? Because I remember at least growing up that, first of all, they don't live that long. And they die of all kinds of things, and it's usually unexpected. Um, but I also feel like probably most people would have a little different attitude about how much money they'd be willing to spend to keep a rat alive. There is a there is dog. a huge financial component that comes into play because there is no insurance company that's deferring part of the cost for you. Um, but you will find individuals that will be bonded to that five dollar mouse from the pet store. And they will do whatever it takes to help out that. So when we think of things like that, it's something that's referred to as the human-animal bond. Human-animal bond is so powerful, it really can't be quantified itself. But it's the, the pets that Sarah has will lower her, her blood pressure, lowers her cortisol levels. She may not think about those things, but it enhances her life. The same thing about an animal who is a touch dog that goes to a human hospital. You see individuals who are so traumatized they don't speak and a dog walks in the room. They speak for the first time in months. It's something that you can't even imagine what it is, 
but that human-animal bond can be leveraged for good. And that will also be the reason that someone will take a $5 pet and may spend $200 to try to fix it. Or in our case, a free cat that we've spent thousands of dollars um, (laughs) taking care of. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that. That cat is still alive. (laughs) So my friend, her name is Audie. She has a feral, well, not feral. she, She has a cat who decided to come live with her in her garage. And it started having kittens in her garage. And... Their family is very responsible with their pets, and they found homes for all of these kittens. They tried to get their cat spayed over and over. And she kept getting pregnant. Yeah, she was either already pregnant or the vet wouldn't do it because she was sick. Yeah. And so eventually they did get this cat spayed, but we got two of their cats. We got Mittens and Boo, and Boo has problems. Yeah, and our uh, Kendra and Martin also got cats from the same place and they've all been really nice cats Mm -hmm. so i wanted to ask about career opportunities and your thoughts on how good of a career being a veterinarian is but maybe before we do that should we talk about boo boo is just the most cutie cat ever he snuggles with you he goes up to your bed and he sits on the bed while you're Watching YouTube or reading a book. He'll go eat your plants, rip up your plants, kill your plants. Sorry, you were just trying to promote Boo now. That's true, though. He does rip up plants. He was just chewing on my plant, Archer. Well, when he was little, his preferred way to be held was laying on his back and holding him like Mm -hmm. like you'd be holding, cradling Mm -hmm. a baby. That's the way that that cat liked to be held. And even now, um, he's he's older and, and doesn't like that so much i don't he still does that though just not as much but well it's because he he's always peeing like every five seconds because he has problems with his bladder yeah so elizabeth and the kids were in um boise yeah boise idaho visiting her parents and i was home taking care of all the animals and this cat which normally is very frisky and friendly just wasn't was being really lethargic and you know, I was doing stuff, and then Saturday, so this was on a Friday, then Saturday he still was fairly lethargic, and by Sunday he wasn't even moving. He was just laying and you know, looked pretty bad. So because I didn't want my wife to come home to her precious and wonderful little cat dead, I took it to the emergency uh, veterinary place, which is much more expensive than the not emergency mm-hmm. place. And anyway, he had a blocked urethra, mm-hmm. which apparently is a very common problem for male cats. For males. Mm-hmm. And so they put a catheter in him, hydrated him. He got better. But I think probably scar tissue from the catheter or something like that. He was still having problems peeing. Mm-hmm. And then they did a surgery where they cut a part of his penis off. It smelled like cat pee mm-hmm. everywhere. And um, it was it was disgusting. I did not like the cat pee smell. Yeah. Our house still does smell like cat pee parts of it but the whole but house much less and it's not the whole house anymore it's just the prim- it's just it's primarily his room yeah the room that he gets to sleep in at night without his diaper on um anyway so that you know it's a fairly low cost solution it's like 30 cents a day for the um the maxi pads and as long as they're always in and as long as he doesn't shift them out of the way he'll walk around at some point we'll show you but 
It works, it works pretty good. Works pretty That's good. good. So there are like period pads that we put on it. Lately, he's been tearing those up mm-hmm. into little shreds and like all the fluff inside, he's been scattering it around the house. Oh, great. Yeah. So apparently this is a fairly common thing. Have yeah, you seen it, it cases? very well could be two concurrent things that are going on. So the obstruction component that you describe is purely be purely because he's a male. So anatomically, his urethra is long, narrow, and tortuous. And then in a female, it's short and wide. So it's uncommon to see a urinary obstruction in the girls. But if you think about why did he develop the, inst- the obstruction initially, um, it's one possibility that it could have been infectious. But even more common than that is actually a sterile cystitis. So cystitis being an infection or an inflammation of the bladder. So it's not because of bacteria and it's not because of a virus or a fungus or anything like that. Just the back, just it's the bladder. It's a condition that occurs. Okay, it reacts as if it had been infected. Absolutely. And this is a condition that has probably been called in the last 30 years five or six different things. Every three or four years, somebody comes up with a new name for the exact same condition. You gotta get um, your own name for but that, But it's Wayne. a challenging condition itself. So it has been treated with antidepressants. It has been treated with joint supplements. It's been treated with all sorts of medications in order to try. You know, years ago, you would hear cat foods that were low in ash. So ash just being minerals that were inside there. So they're trying to reduce the ash because they thought if you could have a lower mineral content, less likely to form crystals or irritation, but there's more to it than that. So potentially feline idiopathic cystitis may be the most common name for it at this point in time. But it's a, it's a challenging thing because it doesn't respond to antibiotics because it's not infectious at all. But there are uh, several things that can help out with those individuals, but it's nothing that you can fix. It's something that you manage. So you're always looking for the redevelopment of an obstruction, secondary to the inflammation. Or, well, you, or you put a diaper on them all the time. Or you put a diaper on them. Yeah, I, I think I'd, or I guess you'd rather spend 30 cents a day rather than like $300 a day for pills. I don't, I think, don't pills, think it's quite that much. They wouldn't be quite much. that much. I agree with Sarah. <laughs> it can it can get it can get expensive, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be near that much. Okay, but it'd be more expensive than thirty cents. More than thirty cents a day. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about your thoughts on you know, recommendations for someone who might be interested in a career in taking care of animals? Well, I think that first off, if somebody wants to be such as Sarah, if you want to go into a paying career. Um, veterinary medicine certainly is a great place to be. And there's really two options you have. You could go ahead and get into that field as a veterinarian, or you could go into it as what they would call a veterinary technician. I've heard of that. Which yeah. is going to be the equivalent of a registered nurse on the human side. So, veterinary technician is not a person who's glorified at cleaning cages, it's the right hand co pilot for the doctor. Do you have. Someone like that in your practice? I have one individual that is, we are attached at the hip all the time. And I can tell you, her expertise makes me look a whole lot better than I truly deserve. And I am grateful for every day that she's there with itself. Is that different education? Now, it's a two-year program as opposed to potentially a seven or eight-year program. We'll save money as well as far as the investment of going into it. 
but they pretty much get to do as a registered technician almost everything that I get to do, except for like the surgical part and the prescribing of medication. She does an awful lot of things for me. I don't put in catheters. I don't draw blood. She does all of those things for me. So just like a registered nurse would do at a doctor's office or a human hospital. Now, for someone that doesn't want to go into veterinary medicine and doesn't want to go into being a veterinary technician, I think you can still have the passion for animals. And I think that as an adult, you could become a school teacher. But the ability to work with animals, maybe through a nonprofit organization, on your time away from school, your weekends, your summers, or whatnot, you still have that availability to satisfy that itch for working with animals, just in a non-paying capacity. Okay. So how much does it cost to go through all the schooling necessary to become a veterinarian? Well, if you figure seven to eight years of college, I hear a lot of the students graduating with 200000 or more dollars of debt. A lot of that would depend upon where do you do your undergraduate. For example, you could go to Mizzou. Mizzou will probably be around $22,000 a year itself. You could go to Vanderbilt and do the exact same thing, and that may be closer to $40,000. I'm not sure. So it depends on if you want to save some money, you just have to pick the appropriate school. Once you get into vet school, though, then you're sort of, you're sort of stuck. Kind of have, you kind of have to pay what they have. There are less than 30 veterinary schools in North America. They are not near the numbers that you have of human uh, schools themselves. So subsequently, because of the small numbers, the, the challenge of getting in is that there's a large number of individuals wanting to get one seat. So the competition uh, yeah. is So you've got to be a really great student. It very much helps. What about um, so? So, what about things like working at a veterinary hospital or um, working with animals and some some rescue capacity or something? Does that increase Always your chances things. of getting in? Well, it is. It doesn't increase it. It has to be done. So, uh, I would always okay. tell people is that if if we look at Sarah and if Sarah wants to pursue possibly veterinary medicine, Sarah, what grade are you in right now? I'm in seventh grade. Okay. So my philosophies may be a little bit outside the box, so I hope that I don't rub your parents the wrong way with my views. But I, I don't think we have strong views on this, so okay. I, I doubt you will. So what I think, my approach for you being in middle school and then in a year or so getting into high school, my recommendations for a person of your age would be take as much math, take as much science as you possibly can, Take as many communication classes and English classes as you can so that you your reading and your writing and your speaking is strong. And don't worry about the grades. As I look at John, he's thinking, oh my gosh, this is the wrong podcast person. The reason I think that the grades aren't important is that if you're looking to get into veterinary school, nothing you do in middle school and nothing you do in high school is pertinent. They're not going to ask you what classes you took, and they're not going to ask you what your grades were. Right. But if you take those four years of high school and those three years of middle school, and you learn as much as you can, when you go to college, that's when the game starts. And so therefore, if you took 
chemistry and advanced chemistry and AP chemistry and all those things in school, when you go to college and you take chemistry in college and say, this is easy, and you get an A out of it, that grade counts. So if you go to high school and you take an AP chemistry class and you get a B, who cares? If you learn the material, that's what's most important. Yes. Now, in addition to your grades, as your father suggested, you do want to gain experience with a veterinarian or some sort of animal field. One, if you think about what you see veterinary-wise on TV, that's not real veterinary medicine. It's different itself. So if you go spend some time with a veterinarian, it's like, this isn't anything like I thought it would be. You know, I don't think I want to do it. It's better to learn it then than after you've invested time and money into college and it may be not the direction that you want to be. You may go hang out with a veterinarian and say, I absolutely want to do this. It reinforces your passion and reinforces your direction to turn. And now you know you're making the right choice. But the big thing that a veterinarian school is looking for, veterinarian schools are looking for well-rounded people. They want you to be smart. They want you to be outgoing. They want you to be involved in your community, whether that be involved with a church group, whether it be involved in a social group at school, whether it be a musical group or whatever it might be. If you just sit in your room and study and get good grades and that's all you are, it makes you a one-trick pony. You're not as desirable as someone else that may have a little bit lower grade point average, but does all sorts of other things. Sarah, you know what they're really looking for? Podcast hosts. Yay. <laughs> Great. I, I well, I'm, I'm getting the experience here, I guess. That way the school, they're thinking, yes, yes, they can come <laughs> and they can help with our public relations. and Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So but you, if, you, if you look at what you're doing right here, you're communicating. And how many people within the seventh grade have the ability to have someone walk into their room and conduct a conversation? for more than three minutes and you're comfortable with it so it says a lot i can conduct mine for like at least three and a half (laughs) (laughs) before the conversation trails off into awkward silence um i'm not sure the right segues for this but you noted that there's some challenges with work-life balance and uh, job satisfaction and and you said there was a high suicide rate for well unfortunately in veterinary medicine if you think of the challenges that we have It's a physically demanding job. You're constantly on and off the floor. You're lifting animals. So it does take a toll on your body. Um, It takes a huge toll emotionally. If you think of life and death things on a daily basis, the emotions that come into play with that. And sometimes for an individual, it might be overwhelming. And so unfortunately, veterinary medicine is sort of at the top of suicide itself. And it should be something that's taken very, very seriously. And I think as a profession, they do, and they try to educate people on what you should look for in colleagues um, as a warning sign to maybe look to get them some help so that something tragic doesn't happen. But I think some of the, some of the big challenges that you have in veterinary medicine from a work-life balance come into play is that most of the people that go into veterinary medicine are type A people. They're very driven. You know, they, they want the very best. They're perfectionists. Is that because that's because the schools are so competitive that that's who ends up doing it, do you think? Most likely. Yeah, I was going to say, because it doesn't seem natural. It doesn't seem intuitive to me that people that would be interested in that career would all be 
type A, but if there's only 30 schools in the country, right. that's possibly. And so the challenge up. with that lies in the fact yeah. that, you know, if you, you may work 50, 55 hours a week, and then when you leave, do you get to just turn off the light? You tend to bring those things home with you. You think about an animal that is ill. You think about an upcoming appointment the next day. There's just a lot of things that come into play. And so that work-life balance that has become a buzzword in the last several years is a very challenging thing in this particular field to make happen. I can imagine also the stresses of running a business. If you're a partner in a veterinary business, yeah. you've so got to worry about that too. At our hospital, I am the managing veterinarian. So I have the the task of having my full-time job as a veterinarian. And then in addition to that, running the business component of that along with my hospital manager. Okay, so what do you do then for uh, work-life balance to make sure that you're not going crazy? or So for my mental sanity, uh, I like to garden. I like to be outside. I play in a rock band. Nice. <laughs> in order to have a release from things. Um, I do all sorts of things to try to take my mind off of the stresses of work. The rock band is the most recent one. You tried I mine. hope it continues. It's gone for three years so far. Yes. That sounds have, you tried, have you tried mindfulness meditation yet? Not yet. Yeah, I've, I've tried that a couple of times and I just I have narcolepsy. So every time I try that, I just fall asleep. It just does not work, but it's one of the um, it's one of the things that's very well supported, as I understand it, very well supported in the the literature that it is a very effective thing to do for um, controlling anxiety and depression. Like if Sarah wanted to get a job, what she got to do? Sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. And what types of jobs do they do for sixteen year olds? Do I assume it's probably cleaning up a lot? Most and, and most taking of the sixteen year olds and the high school kids would be back in the boarding kennel. Taking care of the animals that are back there, not necessarily in the hospital side. Um, in the hospital side, once people are 16, I do have people come during their summers off and they will shadow me. And so I usually have shadowing hours three days a week from eight until 12, and they will basically follow me around. If I'm going into surgery, they'll come into surgery with me. They'll come into appointments with me. And I usually, if I have to make phone calls and write records, Nobody wants to see anybody yeah. talk on oh, the phone so or write exciting. records. So I try to pawn off is not the right word, but I try to direct them to another doctor who's doing something much more interesting than writing records. That makes sense. Okay. So with actually running the business and trying to keep it profitable, as you see patients, you're going to generate revenue that way. And then there's routine checkups, which is you know part of seeing patients, which could generate revenue. But the boarding side of it can also generate revenue. Um, so how much of your time at your business do you focus on creative ways, innovative ways of actually generating more revenue? So if we think of where revenue can be generated, it's generated through the hospital. And then you have passive sources of income, which would be the, our grooming department and then our boarding area. And the boarding area comprises playtime, stuff like that. I have one individual. And when you say passive, you're, you mean passive in regard to non the non-veterinarian, yeah. yes. Yeah. And so that passive income, I have an individual who's in charge of the boarding and pretty much runs that. And then that person, re they have regular meetings with my hospital manager and a person who takes care of the grooming side of things. They meet with my hospital manager 
and then my hospital and manager and I, we will meet um, as a typical rule for a couple of hours every week as a structured meeting. And then it's the five minutes here, the 10 minutes there to, to troubleshoot things on the fly. So what about selling the medications? Do you guys actually do that yourself? So most hospitals act as a pharmacy as well. Yep. Um, most of the things we have in the clinic are veterinary label only, so you don't readily find those out. One of the things that you will see as a shift in veterinary medicine, uh, online pharmacies, Pet Med Express yeah. and Chewies and whatnot. So this is what I was going to ask is how, how much of that um, com- competition in terms of actually filling medication prescriptions. It most likely has taken anywhere from 30 to 40% of the revenue generated by those sources over the last 10 to 12 years. Okay. One of the challenges is if you think of having a giant warehouse, giant warehouse as terms of cost per square foot is basically nothing. We don't have a giant warehouse. So we have you know, retail space and we have all the equipment and whatnot. So we really can't sell medications at the price of a pet's med or something like that. Isn't there not a way for uh, veterinarians to co-op and own some kind of a distribution network like that so that you could directly be competing with the online you medicine? Could, you could have those sorts of things, absolutely. Um, just nothing that has been established at this yeah. point. It just seems like with the corporation you're working for, there's an obvious uh, opportunity for that corporation to not lose that, you said, mm-hmm. up to 40% of the revenue. Right. I, mean, I think they one build of the- their own warehouse or, or, or minimum contract with one of these um, distributors. So you I would, I would agree with that, but I would also disagree a little bit in that the sense of going to veterinary school was to provide the knowledge for us to provide a service as opposed to a product. Yeah. So I think that we're- Well, the corporation we, can handle that. that right? right. And so for us as individuals, we need to provide the things that Chewy or PetsMed can't in the sense that they can't perform the surgeries, they can't do the diagnostic testing and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, if there was something where a corporation could create a co-op type thing, then I would, I would certainly yeah. be. Yeah, I was going to say, then you're, then you're doing your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the corporation, if you ordered a prescription and the person who's got it can go anywhere to fill it, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you've got the first foot in the door in terms sure. of mm-hmm. filling it that way. And that doesn't take away from anything Absolutely. that you're doing as a veterinarian, but perhaps capture some of that revenue back. As long um, as it was something that was online and delivered to your front door. Yep, that's right. That is the way right. America is going. I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Does the medicine ever expire? Yes. Okay. And when it does, it has to be destroyed. So I have a person in the hospital that manages the inventory. So hopefully we don't overorder and have things expire because that money just goes down the drain. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was genetic testing because you said that you didn't um, have much genetics training. So that's that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, my role at Bayer is developing genetic testing methods, primarily aimed for plant breeding. One vision we have is a testing method that does not require an expensive laboratory um, and that an individual could, with no training, could do it without special equipment and so forth. Like an archer could do it, or Sarah could do it, or you could do it. So something like a pregnancy test where you know everyone knows how to use, well, not everybody, but... Um, most adults know how to use a pregnancy test. You pee on it, and it turns blue or it doesn't. So something like that. Um, for example, if it was a leaf, you'd take the leaf, you'd crush it in some liquid, then you pour it onto your test strip, and then you take a picture of it with your cell phone. Uh, 
if you have a scab or a rash on an animal and you could scrape some of it, put it into a vial, shake it, pour it on a test strip and have, say, three or four of the most common causes or most common bacterial or fungal infections or, or viral infections, you could get yes or no calls on those. Um, yeah, I was... I feel like that is actually a trope in movies, yeah. like sci-fi movies. Like people are constantly being tested, and then there's that one scene where they like do the needle thing, and they're like, "Don't expect it." Like, oh my goodness, suddenly it's green. This well, is yeah. Bad. This is the funny thing about these movies is that they make it seem as if you can get these amazing complex assays back. Like, get on that right away, and the technician just walks in, and they work really hard, and a few minutes later, they walk out with the test. That's what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. except not working really hard. Something like that. Um, would help with diagnosis for sure. There's so many interesting things that you could do with genetic testing. Well, you would find there are enzyme or enzyme-linked, you know, ELISA-type tests. Sure. There's also going to be antigen-based tests that you're going to find. Protein-based tests. But then if you're looking for true genetic testing, most of that genetic testing is not coming or being utilized in a sense to treat or diagnose disease as much as is a screening for a breeding itself. Okay. In order to look at the genetics based upon recessive traits, if we look at that simple Mendelian genetics and we think you're a carrier, a clear, or you're affected, assuming it was simple Mendelian, you could breed around those things. So a lot of these applications, you could also send blood work into a laboratory and get the answer. The brilliance of um, an assay that people can pull out of their pocket and do is that you can get your results privately and in 15 right. minutes for identifying a potential infectious disease or something that has a time consequences with it. A breeding right. application like you're describing right. probably so, could be so done so in a laboratory. If you're looking to uh, affect disease itself, you don't need the chromosome component of the human. You need the chromosome component or that antigen component of the organism itself. The bacteria or the virus Correct. or the so fungus. So if you think of like a very common thing that we would see on a daily basis is Giardia, which is a protozoal parasite. That affects uh, animals quite a bit too? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. And so it's a zoonotic condition. So therefore- Have you had Giardia before? I have not. I've had Giardia. From drinking the water in the river. No, it was actually (laughs) from being fed lettuce in Mongolia that hadn't been, um, well, probably I shouldn't have been eating lettuce, but- that, that was not on me. It was given to me by someone I couldn't refuse it from. But, but as a anyway. testing device, it's an antigen-based test. So you're basically looking at some of the genetic material that's associated with that organism in a fecal-type sample. And so as an antigen test, if it comes up positive, you have it. So there are tests like that that veterinarians use? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So then there's probably plenty of organisms for which there is not such a test. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the great thing about a genetic test is once you figure out how to do the DNA detection, then you can just program to detect whatever mm-hmm. DNA you'd like. Yeah. So the development of a new assay, that time frame gets you know, shortened by an order of magnitude. So like, for example, the, the Giardia test, if I did it in the house, I'd have an answer in eight minutes. Yeah, It'd be that's that right. quickly. So the challenge from a Bayer standpoint is looking to identify an organism that hasn't been done, and an organism that would generate the income that you need to pay for the R&D and everything else. So you may have the answer to something that's very small, it's not commonly seen, and that won't make it out of the R&D department. Yeah. And so in my mind, the way to flip that paradigm is to come up with a universal method that makes the development of the assay itself uh, trivial. Something Mm -hmm. that you go on the computer, you enter a sequence, hit a button, Three days later, you've got the thing in hand. Now that's still different from the efficacy and um, safety and so forth, but at least 
that part of it could be made trivial. So, you know, we'll see. But there are um, there are several publications over the last couple of years where people have developed these methods. Do we have anything we want to wrap up on? What's your favorite part of being a vet? I think the a lot of times people talk about in business your why. Your why is a reason that you get up and do the things that you do, right? And so your why can change as you evolve through life. And I would say my why right now, the reason for getting up in the morning is to perpetuate and strengthen that human-animal bond. So to make that pet and that owner have as good a quality for as long as they possibly can itself. And so that's what sort of gets me motivated. Yay. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot. Yes, Thank you very much for coming interview. over. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Now, it's time for the Golden Chair Award. This award is given each week by my mom, Elizabeth Lamb, to a person that was really helpful, truly caring, or made her happy. The winner gets to sit with us in the golden chair at our big table for that week, or at least until the next award is given. Even if you don't win the golden chair, there are plenty of seats with us at our big table, and you're always welcome to join us. So, we had some happy events and people um, who did things worth noting. We had friends over for dinner one evening, and Archer created these impressive charcuterie platters. What does charcuterie mean? Well, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I'm just looking at pictures that I've seen on Pinterest. But they generally seem to involve um, cuts of meat and cheese and olives and crackers. And um, Archer created a platter that it was different cheeses and crackers with some meats. And then he also created a vegetable platter that had different dips. And everyone who came over and saw them thought that they had come from the store. Like he did an amazing job on them. And then John's parents, Glenn and Veronica, uh, invited us over to a lovely New Year's Eve party where um, we had lots of friends there and played interesting games. It was Christmas break and um, John and the kids were all home and John was wonderfully faithful at trying to keep the kitchen clean, doing dishes several times over. And a highlight of our Christmas break was that John and Sarah succeeded at fixing her iPad. She had dropped it and the screen had shattered. And they made multiple attempts to replace that screen with a new screen, which turns out is a very tricky job. In the end, they succeeded. Thank you, YouTube, for so many people posting great videos with helpful suggestions. Yeah, that, that was one of the strange things when we were working on that was, um, well, let me just tell you a little bit about that. So we first got the screen off, which is challenging. You got to heat it up to get the glue loose, pull the screen off, uh, and then we replaced the broken screen. And then we turned it on and the touch part was not responding. Um, that's actually a very common thing that happens, it turns out. I mean, I didn't know this, but 
Oh, did you break the touch sensor? Well, we actually didn't break the touch sen- sensor. It was just fine, but it's often the case that when you jolt or replace it like that, that the touch sensor just doesn't respond initially. And what you're supposed to do is do a hard reset. So you you turn off the, the device, not just um, letting it time out, but you actually hold down the, oh, I don't know, that's like the power button and the home button or something. You hold them for a while and then the thing completely restarts. And then it, you know, it just starts up then, then it'll work. But we didn't know that. And by then Sarah had, and I had been working on this for quite a while and she was getting pretty impatient. So she got real frustrated and then she um, popped the uh, glass off. And in the process of doing that, she actually cut a cable that connected to the power button. So that meant that we had to obtain a new power button thing, which we did based on the model of the iPad. But the thing is, um, because she got the iPad refurbished, I think that they must have changed some parts about it because the component that we got actually didn't work with that model of iPad. It worked with the very, she has an iPad 2. So it worked with an iPad 2, but a different iPad 2 model. So we got that, we got all ready to install it. And we go, wait a minute, this doesn't look the same as what the YouTube video video is. So we double checked and triple checked and quadruple checked. And yes, we had absolutely ordered the right part for that model. But it turns out that we had to order the part for a different model in order to get it to work. So you know, we figured it out eventually, but we had to order another part and wait another couple of days for it to show up and got it all in. And then the final thing that happened was the color. When we did that, the color on the um, screen looked wrong. Like the black, instead of being black, was kind of reddish. And so Sarah at that point goes, it's fine. It's good enough. And she didn't try and pop it open or anything. And then I went on YouTube, typed in screen the wrong color. And it had video after video after video of people showing what to do, which basically is you give it a good solid whack in the back or you twist. You grab it on either side and you give it a twist. So I said, Sarah, come here. Let me see that. And I took it and I twisted it and the color restored perfectly. I handed it back to her. It was extremely satisfying. Yeah, that sounds awesome. (laughs) I I love like magic. I love simple solutions like that where it's just like, Oh, huh. Hmm. Well, maybe that would have accidentally happened. But Yeah, and apparently that is the fix and it's permanent. Like it it's not as if the piece is broken or anything's wrong with it. It's just it's every like now stick. and then that happens if you drop it, if you drop your phone or drop your iPad and the colors get wonky like that, you give it a slow hard twist, the colors come back and then they're fixed. Strange, huh? So this week I'm extending the Golden Chair Award to Mike Smith. He is our brother-in-law's father. And our friend. And our dear friend, we consider him our grandpa. He did something very special for Ava's birthday. He gave her his stamp collection. Nice. Yeah, that was cool. He is married to a lovely lady named Marty, who is from the Netherlands. Mike and Marty. And so consequently, he had lots of stamps from the Netherlands and from all around the world, countries in Africa, some from Australia. Ava was ecstatic. And he was so happy to have found someone who appreciated all the stamps. Wanted to collect stamps. He said, I always hoped that one of my children or grandchildren collected stamps. He gave it to Ava and he said, this just made my day. So, Mike, come have a seat in our golden chair. Yeah, we really like Mike and Marty. We love them quite a bit. They're, They're a dear family. 
and they're very kind to us, and they're very kind to our children. So, And they live pretty close to us, too, so we get to see them regularly. Thanks, Elizabeth. Hi, this is Sarah's Weekly Joke. So yet again, I had a dream. Is this about another shih tzu? This is not about a shih tzu. In this dream, I was a muffler. It was hard work being a muffler. I woke up exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha. Yikes. Okay, well, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Woo-woo-woo-woo-woo.